Welcome to Tech by Design. Design is passion, design is energy, design is enthusiasm. On these episodes, we'll talk to people who exude all those things about the products they build. Come join us. Welcome everyone to another episode of Tech by Design presented by the Richmond Technology Council. My name is Nick Surface. I'm the CEO of the Richmond Technology Council. Uh, along with me today is Alex Atanias from Shaco Mobile by Design. Good morning, Alex. Morning, Nick. How are you doing? I'm really happy to be here. Doing well. Our podcast today is also presented by Shaco Mobile by Design. Alex, tell us a little bit about Shaco. Shaco is a mobile development agency. We're about 10 years old, based in Richmond, Virginia. We've been working with uh, some of the uh, most impressive Fortune 500 companies um, for the last 10 years. We also work with a lot of startups, museums, and schools to essentially help them understand what mobile, AR, and immersive experiences mean to them. Looking forward to this conversation, man. Yeah, the conversation is going to be great today. We have another Alex on the line with us, Alex Nargis. Alex is with the VMFA. Uh, Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining well, thanks, Nick, and, and thanks, Alex, for the invitation. Uh, Alex uh, Nargis, I got We have two Alexes, so I'll try to be careful throughout the day. Before we get into design, because we're going to talk a little bit today about this, the design for museums, we're going to talk about exhibits, we're going to talk about art, hopefully maybe a little architecture too. But tell us a little bit about your background. I know you've been at several different museums um, before coming to VMFA. Um, give us kind of the quick two to three minute snapshot of, of your career and your history and how you got to, to be here in Richmond. Well, I got I got here by good fortune of answering a phone call from a search firm in Los Angeles that was doing the search back in 2005 and couldn't be happier. As I tell everybody, it's like dying and going to heaven without having to die. And so I but I started out in the field of museums as an archaeologist. My first paying job was in the mid late 1970s out in Colorado working for the uh, Smithsonian's Department of North American Archaeology. And I discovered I didn't like dirt. I didn't like archaeology. And um, I went back to graduate school for uh, museum work and uh, was fortunate enough to start my career as a director down in uh, East Central Florida uh, at the beginning of 1982. So I just, I just celebrated my 40th anniversary as an art museum director. And since then, I, I was director down in Florida for about four years, directed the Mississippi Museum of Art in uh, Jackson. We also had branches in Biloxi and Tupelo. Uh, I then, uh, after about seven years, went up to Dayton, Ohio, to the art museum there, the Dayton Art Institute. I uh, was there for 14 years when I was lucky enough to field that call uh, from LA and came here. Uh, and I have to say, it's been best move of my life other than getting married and having a son. Wow. Well, Alex Nargis, that is quite the promotion for the city of Richmond. We do a little bit of economic development stuff ourselves, And I have to tell you, I think the phrase going to heaven without having to die may be Richmond's new tagline. I think we got to figure out a way to, to implement that in. Well, that's a fantastic way to start. So you've been all over the country. You've been at this now, um, you know, curating museums, leading museums for quite some time. And that's what we want to get into today. We want to talk about all the design elements that go into putting on um, a, a spectacular museum experience. Mm -hmm. um, and sometimes that's art, sometimes that's design and, and infrastructure, um, and maybe there's some strategy too. So what I'd like to start with is exhibits. So uh, you're always looking at new exhibits, I imagine, or 
deciding whether you know an exhibit is right for for the VMFA. How does one scout for that? So if you're in the museum business and do they come across your desk? Is there an agency that does it? Do you go out and look for them? How does a new exhibit even come through the doors um, and get on your desk for review? Well, Nick, Nick it's all of the above. Um, and actually, it starts, quite frankly, with our strategic plan. We base everything on our permanent collection. And our collection, just to give you a thumbnail sketch, is about 50,000 plus objects, uh, includes work from across the world over the last 6,000 years. We've got 10 curatorial departments, uh, 16 or 17 curators who work in specialties ranging from American art to European art to African art, East Asian art, Chinese, uh, Japanese, Korean, Indian, uh, Native American, pre-Columbian, and so on. So, uh, and each of our curators is charged with creating an exhibition that is important to their respective field. They have to create an exhibition that also produces a book-length publication, which is important to the scholarship in their particular discipline. And then ideally, it also travels. So um, that is that is one of the primary ways that we create exhibitions. So you'll look back over the last couple of years, and we just opened a, a great show that the head of our American department has done, which is the Guitar in American Art. Uh, storied strings uh, just opened this uh, past weekend. Spectacular show borrowed from uh, collections around the country, uh, as well as, uh, you know, not paintings and sculptures and photographs, but also 34 different guitars. Eric Clapton's guitar. I mean, this this whole range. But the scholarship around it is is fabulous. The Man Ray show that our chief curator, Michael Taylor, did uh, this time last year, a photography show by one of the great uh, surrealists and photographers uh, of the 20th century. So those are that's one avenue. The other avenue is that we borrow exhibitions from other institutions. And if you could see my inbox, either email, but usually it's also the my inbox of, of real mail and packages are the exhibition proposals we get from around the world. So those those happen. And mind you, because we have only so many spaces for special exhibitions, we turn down 95% of the exhibition opportunities. We have a capital campaign that we've launched, which is going to build another 175,000 square foot wing, the next McLaughlin wing, McLaughlin wing uh, part two. And one of the key elements of that is another major special exhibition space, 12,000 square feet of space so that we can always have major exhibitions like the guitar show we have up currently. And they will have two major shows 70 or 80 percent of the time. That's going to give us the opportunity to be able to say yes to more things that cross our desk. Alex, I want to get into the design of, of the space itself in a second, infrastructure and all you know these new additions and, and renovations. But I want to go back to the exhibit because I want to kind of learn a little bit more about what makes a good art exhibit. At this mm -hmm. point, I assume you don't put it, bring anything in the door that you don't think is going to be fantastic and exceptional. But I assume over this many years, you've also seen some that are better than others. So what makes a great exhibit versus one that's just, you know, kind of checks some boxes? Well, num number one for us is the quality of the art. And without having great works of art, it's not something we even consider. Now, one of the basic premises of our planning is diversity. 
So you have great shows like Valerie Castle Oliver, who runs our contemporary department, The Dirty South, which is a huge show we had this past year and also is traveling uh, around the country. And those exhibitions, we just had an exhibition on photography that was at the Getty that was curated by another one of our contemporary curators, uh, Sarah Eckhart. And it was a landmark show. It went to uh, the Whitney in New York. Uh, it was lauded by the uh, New York Times. The LA Times art critic called it the most important exhibition of last year. And so we have, we have these exhibitions uh, like the Dirty South and others that uh, also establish our reputation. But it starts with the quality of the art. And then there has to be a story behind the exhibition. In the case of uh, Storied Strings, uh, the guitar, it's all about how guitars are depicted across the last two centuries in American art uh, and why. So the, there's a fabulous catalog with about eight or nine essays in it uh, that adds measurably to the field of scholarship around not just American art, but the guitar. And it becomes something that'll be sought after by people who play guitar, art historians, um, people who just enjoy something a little different. Alex, is there ever an experiential element that complements the quality of the art that you all look at? Maybe if you can provide a few examples or anything unique that you've seen over time where maybe the, the way that you go about the exhibit or experience it is a little bit different or non-traditional. Well, we, I can give you a couple of really great examples, and, and both of them came from Leo, the head of our American art uh, department. Uh, he did the great Edward Hopper show a couple of years ago, and he took one of the classic Hopper paintings, and it's a woman sitting in a hotel room with a window behind her and a car and a landscape beyond that. He recreated the hotel room, and our, we have fabulous exhibition designers uh, lighting designers on staff, and they did it. In fact, our art handlers, our, our, our carpentry shop, recreated all the furniture in the Hopper painting. So it was an exact replica of the bedroom in the painting. And then we rented out the hotel room, and within 36 hours, every night that we had made available for that room was sold out. Alex Otanias, I wanted to pass it over to you. Do you have any experience designing on the digital space for museums? Does this resonate with you? Have you done exhibits yourself with the VMFA? What's your tie-in with, with museums and art exhibits? So I was actually going to ask Alex the same question, but we did several proof of concepts for a few museums here, uh, both in town and, and around the country. But what we do is we use mobile phones and mobile applications to essentially bring people into the exhibit themselves. So is there a way to have somebody experience an SR-71 by not just looking at it, but understanding how the engine works? Is there a way for people to experience how the guitar like actually like strums or, or what it looks like as the musician plays the guitar? And I think the challenge there, and Alex, this was this is a question for you, but one of the challenges that we've had when we work with museums or schools is once somebody pulls out their phone, they're not, not just immersed in the exhibit, they're immersed in a text message or a phone call or an email. And so it's a fine line that people play, allowing people to experience the exhibit using technology, but also not having them immersed in their phone and really present in that space. So I was going to ask you, Alex, when and if you use technology, what are your thoughts around that? 
Well, it's a great question. And it's one we quite frankly wrestle with. And Alex, you hit the nail on the head. It's that, that we don't want people to get distracted. And, and unfortunately, we, we're all subject to that. Uh, once we pull our phones out, we get lost in that environment. But we use technology a lot, uh, much generally simpler approaches, audio guides, which of course, in the past, were actually standalone stations where we had charging stations and leased or rented out the audio guides. We moved away from that because the cell phone is ubiquitous. And so it's easier to have people just download it, saves them money, saves time. People can listen anywhere, anytime. They don't actually have to be in the exhibit to listen to it. But it becomes usually less of a distraction because of that. We employ QR codes for people to be able to scan those and pull up more data about the work of art that they're looking at. Because, you know, we can embed videos and audio files so that people can then delve more deeply into what they're seeing. Because ultimately, the exhibition is a learning process. We're an educational institution, and so the more avenues we can give people to learn, the better it is. Now, one of the more interesting ways we're using technology with this new guitar exhibition is that instead of a hotel room, Leo's embedded a recording studio in the middle of the exhibition. And so we've lined up a whole host of guest artists who are coming in and doing recordings, and we're going to essentially press a record, or at least whatever the contemporary version of that is, at the end of the exhibition. I think records have become popular again, so we can talk about records. Even though they're not in the metaverse, I think they're they're still being played. But Alex, one of the things that we did with Anheuser-Busch uh, not too long ago, I think this was two, three years ago, back at their, their facility in St. Louis is, is a historic place. They've been brewing, I think it's the longest standing brewer in the country, but we used augmented reality to essentially bring the brewery to life. And when people would put their phone up against specific locations in the brewery, it would showcase images of what the brewery looked like during prohibition or, or what it looked like behind the scenes or, or what it looked like to be mixing the beer. And, and it was really interesting because people were immersed in the conversation about the action rather than their phone themselves. And at the end, we turned it into, into essentially a food ordering application. So the application would pair with the experience, which was really, really nice. And I think there are ways to do it nicely. And, and I think if you merge that technology with the experience itself, it is well done, but it takes a lot of patience and, and just a lot of trial and error. Yeah. And, and we've experimented a little bit with virtual reality and the goggles uh, in our education area downstairs, uh, the Mead West Vaco Learning Center. In fact, with the current exhibit. So we we like to use technology as an aid, um, but it goes back to where we started is that people can look at art from across the globe by just turning on their computer or picking up their phone. But the difference with an art museum is that we are all about reality. We're about the experience with the actual objects, whether it's a, a painting or a sculpture. And you cannot no matter how good the technology is, uh, no matter how deep you can embed various interpretation into it, you can't substitute it. And the, the equivalent I give you is a picture of a great meal. It's wonderful to look at, but it you can't really taste it. And it, that experience only goes so far, which is one of the reasons and I'd be remiss without saying this. Um, one of the reasons that we are open with free general admission and open 365 days a year because we want people to be able to experience art every day 
as often as possible. And we have the best hours of any art museum in the United States. Uh, we're open seven days a week, 365 days a year, plus three evenings a week. And, um, you know, look at some of my other uh, colleague institutions. We're one of the 10 largest art museums in America. I don't know that any of the other uh, large art museums are open. Some of them are not open a single night a week. Uh, others are only open one night a week. And here in little old Richmond, Virginia, you can come Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. And, you know, we've got live entertainment, live jazz on Wednesday evenings. Fridays, we've got all kinds of live programming. And then, of course, the restaurant, the cafe, uh, our gift shop, special exhibitions, and, you know, endless galleries. We have something like six acres of permanent collection galleries for people to see. Yeah. As the museum grows, I think you, you spoke about adding a new space, but how do you see exhibits evolving in the future? Like what, what are things that, so you talk about the jazz, you talk about the space that people enjoy, the community that you are building, but how do you see these exhibits evolving in the future? What are, what are some, some big plans that you could share that, that you think museums are starting to look into beyond technology? What are some of the trends that, that you see happening? Well, you know, the, the one thing I'll start with is the fact that we've just been through a pandemic and the difficulty of organizing major international traveling shows. And I've been hearing about the death of the blockbuster for my entire career. And that conversation reached a new crescendo in the last two years where major museums are saying, never again, we're never going to do blockbusters. You can't get the loans. You can't pay for the insurance. You can't, you know, you can't ship it. You can't insure it. It's all a bunch of hooey. Major exhibitions are going to always happen. Uh, they're based in the scholarship and the ability to bring great works of art together in one place. I was in London I guess it was in the in the middle of the summer, and the National Gallery there had a huge show of Raphael. And there's no substitute be, for being able to bring a huge number of original paintings by uh, one of the seminal uh, European artists of, of the last thousand years together in one place. To be able to have that journey in person, th there's no substitute, not on a computer, not in a book. Uh, not in a seminar that goes for 13 weeks. Alex, I want to talk more about that experience. You mentioned that the facility is open 365 days a year. So let's talk about that facility. Let's get into the architecture of it. Mm. As you're looking at the new spaces, uh, I assume it's expansion more so than renovation. I don't know how far along that process you are, but talk to me about the design of it. What kinds of things are you thinking about? What kinds of things are you asking for? And are you hearing or seeing any new trends in the design world that um, you know has your, has your eyes kind of perked up a little bit? Well, let me say that in the art museum business, uh, much like in any, any other corner of architecture, you get two kinds of, of architects and architecture. You get, you know, beautiful architecture, either of these two directions. But in one direction, what you get are monuments to architects, architects who create design for design's sake, and then forget all of the other reasons that you're doing an expansion. Now, we've chosen a, a architecture firm called the Smith Group out of Washington, D.C., uh, one of the larger architectural firms in the country. Great designers, two of whom, by the way, and our, our senior leadership team are from Richmond and Virginia. Uh, and their first experiences with art were because of the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. Now, what they have, though, is a, is a very different approach. 
an approach that puts the visitor and the artwork as central. Now, they're not going to forsake beautiful design, great flow, you know, spaces that make people feel good. And we've already, we've already moved into design development. We finished our conceptual design phase of about a month or two ago. And so we're really deep, deep in to the interior spaces, the facades. And I got to tell you, we are excited about what this architecture team is doing. It's going to be every bit as exciting as the McLaughlin Wing we opened in 2010. That was designed by Rick Mather, who was an American, but he had spent his uh, last 40 years in London. In fact, the design of the first McLaughlin Wing won the International uh, British Architecture Award, uh, as well as other awards. And its success is that it provides great, great space with beautiful light, sight lines, flow, but it doesn't forget the basic premise of why it exists, which is to be able to show art to our visitors. And whether it's the special exhibition spaces or the McLaughlin Galleries of American Art or the Carpenter Galleries of South Asian Art, all of those spaces work for the visitor most of all. Come to our restaurant, Amuse. I mean, it's, it's one of the great places to dine, not just because it's fabulous food, which it is, but because the space is so beautiful. Alex, we've talked a little bit about, we talked about artists and exhibits. We talked now about architects. Um, as somebody who is essentially building a home for designers, how has your philosophy or mentality evolved over time in, in your career? Is that is that an intimidating space to be where you are essentially designing for designers? You're, you're trying to provide a great space to highlight people who um, already create great things and beautiful things. Well, actually, you know, it, it, it is a real art form. Our, our exhibition designers and our lighting designers on staff, they're brilliant. Um, and every exhibition, when you go downstairs into our special exhibition galleries, Every exhibition is custom designed to be an environment specifically for what you're seeing. In the case of this guitar and American art exhibition, it is vastly different than the last exhibition. In fact, I walk in and I don't even know where I am because the the walls configuration changes, the flow changes, the colors change. Um, Every treatment uh, in this exhibition, we have sound stations, we have video stations. Um, It is a completely different environment because it it is specifically created to complement, not to overcome what you're seeing and enjoying. So Alex, um, we talk about the exhibit and the restaurant and, and a lot of the amazing places at the BMFA. I have a daughter and one of my favorite places has been and always will be the, the kid center. Mm-hmm. My, my daughter learned to, to love art because of the space that you guys have designed down there. I mean, it's, it's an open space. It's, it's inviting to both parents and kids. Talk to us a little bit about that space. I, I mean, my daughter's been going since she was 18 months, I think. I mean, my, my wife's an artist and a photographer. So, so she both love the exhibit and loves the space, but, um, talk to us about the, the, the design that went into that space, uh, just just to make it so inviting for kids 18 to, I mean, 18 months and older. Well, you know, first of all, there are two or three different ways of how we approach our exhibition space in the education center. One is the visual. And of course, great design is great design. But the second is about tactile and the experiential, because that is so important to learning. Uh, you know, art museums are notorious 
uh, for please don't touch. Well, this is a space that we want people to touch. It's where we've employed, you know, virtual reality. And ultimately, it's about breaking things down into elements not any different than a classroom setting, but just much, much more engaging. Uh, we have an amazing crew of educators on staff, and many of them have classroom experience. So they brought that experience as working artists, as classroom teachers, as museum educators to create a space. And I'm glad, Alex, that your family enjoys it so much because it is, it's really one of the, the highlights uh, of, of a museum visit. And it, I'll have to say this. It's not just for kids. Uh, adults can learn there, too, and enjoy. Agreed. Alex, do you work with any other museums in the Richmond area, or do you have sibling museums around the country? Is, is there any collaborative approach with um, some of your colleagues, either locally or nationally? Uh, well, we live in an international world. Uh, we are partners. We have a five-year partnership with the National Museum of China. Uh, in fact, uh, we sent our Schlumberger jewelry collection there uh, right before uh, the pandemic began. And then we are bringing treasures from the National Museum of China to the museum in 2024. That's been curated by our curator of Chinese art, uh, Li Jin, as well as the director of the National Museum of China, uh, Wang Chunfa, and, and his colleagues. So um, that's one example. We're also part and founded uh, some 23 years ago a partnership of what is now 16 French museums and 16 museums in North America. Uh, it's called FRAME. It's the French and American uh, Museum Exchange. And so we, we collaborate on educational programs, on exhibitions, on lending. Um, and then we have uh, friendships and partnerships with all of the major museums, not just in this country, but literally around the world. And we do things with our colleagues with lending. We lend voraciously. I was just in uh, Los Angeles at the Getty and uh, seeing a Cy Twombly exhibition. The centerpiece of the show was this big Cy Twombly from the Virginia Museum Collection. Alex, if you ever have space in your bag, please let me like crawl in because I would love to go visit all these museums with you and just just take the behind the scene tour with you. I mean, it just it sounds incredible. Well, you know, I as I always say to people, I hate to have a real job, but you know, of course, my if you ask my wife, my job consumes 12, 13, 14 hours a day on on average. That doesn't include the travel. And as exciting as the travel is, I can tell you um, last week I was in London for a couple of nights. Then I was in Los Angeles for a couple of nights and uh, then landed back here on Tuesday morning after a, a red eye. And, and then I can I can only confess that, you know, there are days I wake up and I have to ask the question. So where am I? <laughs> Alex, I imagine a lot of that time uh, is spent uh, reading or at least having a book in your hand while you're doing something else, uh, if it's traveling or, or moving around, you know, doing research, doing investigating, just learning on your own. And frankly, just hearing you speak, it, it's admirable to hear how uh, well-versed and articulate you are about art. Uh, it's an area in an industry that I know very little about, um, but to hear you speak about it is uh, it, it's admirable at the least, and at most, it's inspiring um, to maybe get into a new field myself. But I'd like to know, is there anything that you read, have read recently, or maybe it's just something that you've read and is kind of a core piece that you always refer to? Is there something that inspires you that you can recommend to our audience 
you know, either something motivational or something design related or just anything that's really stuck with you over time or you think will stick with you over time um, that you could share with our audience? Oh, I, we, we would have to talk for another hour to just <laughs> – the number of the number of, of books, you know, and there are there are really several avenues. One, obviously, just the 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 books like the catalog for uh, storage strings or the Dirty South. I mean, they're they're so captivating, and you know, one of the the great parts about my job is that we have such a variety of exhibitions that, you know, they span from, we just did a a great contemporary show that was done by our head of South Asian art, John Henry Rice, on a a Nepalese artist, Sharon Sherpa. And this is the first major one-person show he's had in America. And it was a stunning exhibition and then a great catalog. And of course, what I knew about contemporary Nepalese art before this exhibition was absolutely zero. Having read that one volume about this artist and looking at how he came from a tradition of traditional Himalayan painters uh, painting what are called tankas uh, that had been done for centuries and centuries, but then grew into adapting contemporary style and imagery and then blending it with traditional techniques totally fascinating. So every time, and I encourage people, if you what we, if you want to be inspired, just go to a museum, go to an area that you have no idea about in terms of history or art and start exploring. And then if you've got your phone, obviously, uh, pull up. I did this the other day in the um, British Museum because I was in London last week. And I went into the ancient Iranian, the ancient Persian galleries to see things that date back three and 4,000 years and only to stumble then next in to the Celtic galleries where I was seeing these unbelievable works of art from the third and fourth centuries in England and Wales and what is now Ireland. And so next on my reading list is to understand a history of Celtic art which I know nothing about. And so, Nick, one of the things I, I tell people to inspire people to learn more I know a great deal about art. In my office here at home, I've got a wall of books on nothing but the history of photography, all of which I've read and I've written a couple of them. Now, imagine a football field and then imagine a dime. What I know about art history is the dime, the field of art history of that foot. If you think about the football field, isn't one football field, it's probably 50 football fields wide. And so even though you say, I don't know anything about art, I could look at that dime and those 50 football fields and say the same thing. But it's it's the quest to want to learn more. And what for me underpins it all is to understand about the human inspiration to create. And Alex, you're, you mentioned your wife's an artist and a photographer. Uh, I'm a photographer as well. And I'm fascinated to think about what happened two centuries ago or two millennia ago or seven millennia ago when somebody's creating a pot and then painting it. And you've got to think about what was the inspiration behind that to create a decorative thing other than just a purely utilitarian object. And so that's that's the allure for me uh, about art um, is that it's it's endless uh, and it's always inspiring. I was going to say, Alex, you need to have a coffee with my wife. (laughs) I love it. 
Uh, Alex, I don't know if we could wrap it up any better. That was um, a beautiful and elegant way to uh, to kind of finish this tapestry of a conversation. Um, and what I'd like to do is I would just like to encourage uh, folks who are listening to this, um, who are mostly in the technology space and you know certainly thinking about design themselves, to consider taking some time going over to the, the VMFA and uh, and using it to inspire you uh, in your own design, whether um, it's an app or a website, or you're just putting you know lines of code together. There's an elegance and there's a design to all of it, and everything is an art form in, in what we do in technology. And so I'm hoping that uh, you've kind of inspired some people to walk through the doors at VMFA, and uh, hopefully, uh, as our audience is looking at those exhibits, they uh, can take some design tidbits and elements back to their own world and uh, and design better themselves. Super. Uh, thanks so much, Alex Nargis. Uh, Alex, Director and CEO of the VMFA. Well, Alex, thank you so much for joining us today on Tech by Design. We really appreciate it. Alex, thank you so much. This was amazing. Thanks, Nick. And thanks, Alex. And we'll see you all next time on Tech by Design. Again, presented by the Richmond Technology Council and Shaco Mobile by Design. Bye, Alex. And bye, Alex. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jan.